0: Good morning. Good to see each one of you here this morning. I just want to quickly give you a little bit of a update as to what's happening tonight. Tonight we're going to be looking at a question. The question that we're going to be proposing is, Must Christians believe in the virgin birth? Do I need to believe in the virgin birth, the virgin conception, uh, to be born again, to be a a believer? And so that's the question we're going to dive into tonight, and I'd encourage you if you're interested to join us at six o'clock here at the church. We're on a journey of discovery, discovering Jesus. Who is Jesus during this Christmas time, time we set aside for our focus of Christ and so we have been on this journey of discovery as we looked into Jesus. We've been looking through a number of the uh, phrases that we have here before us. Uh, we discovered that Jesus is the Prince of Peace as we looked at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. Here we presented evidence. Right? There was evidence that's overwhelming for the number of prophecies that are fore- foretold hundreds and hundreds of years Prior to Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem, we also highlighted the fact that uh, there were names uh, recorded for us that had been given. Right? A child has been born, There's a, a son is given, he's a wonderful counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father and prince of peace. Last week in Matthew chapter one, verse 23 and Isaiah 7:14, we discovered that the greatest name The greatest name attributed to Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And if you missed one or both of those messages, you can catch up by visiting our website or our YouTube channel. So as we continue this journey, as we continue along here on our quest to discover Jesus, this week we want to direct our focus and our attention to Jesus as the King of Kings. According to GotQuestions.com, what is the Christmas nativity? Tradition says that Francis of Assisi created the very first Christmas nativity scene in A.D. 1223. After a trip to the Holy Land and Christ's birthplace. So began a new tradition that took root in many of the western countries. Today we can see the nativity scene in front of churches homes on street corners and in pageants every christmas season the word nativity is taken from a latin word which means to arise arisen in by birth the nativity scene is a representation of the night of jesus birth as depicted in the gospels of matthew and luke nativities can be pictures models live demonstrations carvings but usually contain the same elements. The Christ child in a manger, His mother Mary, His earthly father Joseph, shepherds, angels, various barn animals, a star, and sometimes three wise men bringing gifts. A nativity scene is most often set inside of a stable or a cave. Displaying a Christmas nativity scene, it goes on to say, is a long-standing tradition but it can also present a bit of a skewed view of the actual events of Jesus' birth. While each person depicted in the traditional nativity scene is part of the Christmas story, not all the characters were present at one place on the night that Jesus was born. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were in a stable that night due to the overcrowding in Bethlehem's inn. But the Bible never mentions whether there were animals present, In fact, it never even mentions a stable. The shepherds, once told of Jesus' arrival, left their flocks to worship the newborn king. However, the angels, which are often part of the nativity scene, bore the good news to the shepherds in the fields. And as far as we know, there were no angels flying visibly over the place where Jesus was born and where the shepherds had arrived. In addition, the wise men, the Bible never says how many there were, we're probably not present that first night. The magi visited Jesus sometime later when he was in a house. Despite these small details, a Christmas nativity scene is a wonderful reminder of what has happened that night Jesus was born. You see, ever, it goes on to say, ever since Adam and Eve's sin, our relationship with God has been marred and has been broken. Out of love, God sent His Son in the human form to seek and to save. The lost. To that end, Jesus Christ was born in the town of Bethlehem. Modern Christmas nativity scenes help to proclaim Christ's birth and the true reason for the season. So as we dive into our discovery of Jesus as the King of Kings, we want to turn first of all to Matthew chapter 2. As we have been kind of following along in the story and the accounts as it's been given to us in Luke, and it's been given to us in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 is where we will focus our attention this morning. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of, king, of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. uh, arch was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. It's interesting as we travel through here, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Here we have God appearing, God at least making reference to the wise men that this is what's taking place, Uh, and they are on a quest and a journey themselves to discover Jesus, to discover this king, the king of the Jews, and they come, and they come to Jerusalem, the star or the light leads them to Jerusalem. They come to Jerusalem and they begin to inquire, you know, where is the King of the Jews? Where is this baby who is born King of the Jews? In essence, of the the essence of the story is Jesus is to be King of the Jews, right? That's his function. That's what's going to take place here. In Matthew two four, the King of the Jews is equated with. It means it represents the Messiah. The one that they, the Jews, looked forward to. Their kind of Savior, their Messiah, their King who would come. And so we find that this is the case here. He's equated with Messiah. Jesus did not assume His throne, however, in His first coming. But rest assured, He will be King of the Jews in His final second coming. As he returns, King of the Jews, which is found in Revelation nineteen sixteen, he'll set up his messianic kingdom and he'll reign from his throne in Jerusalem, as he has said. Imagine the threat that such a question would pose to Herod. Right? So they begin to travel around. Hey, where's this baby? Where's this baby born, King of the Jews? Well, word gets to King Herod. And Herod, you can just imagine the shock that he's going through at this point. He's he's just imagining, he's going, whoa, wait a minute, who's this? Uh, That is a threat to me as king. For he considered himself king of the Jews. In fact, it was a title given to him by the Romans that he would be king of the Jews. So no wonder Herod was troubled. Well, we do not know the nature of uh, as uh, was a, a witness to the Creator, well, right? But in uh, Psalm nineteen one to six, and that He had set eternity in their hearts. That is the only natural revelation which will not accomplish salvation, right? It, it's it's the fact that Christ will be here and accomplished that will accomplish our salvation. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. We notice that the Magi even asked the question about the King of the Jews would clearly indicate that there had been some sort of revelation, divine revelation to them that they just simply didn't stumble upon this. They probably came about through a source. It's not certain which the source is. There are a number of prophecies that allude to the Messiah as king. And if you consider the fact that Daniel was captive in Babylon, Babylon is in the east. There's a possibility that his writings and his prophecies uh, were still in Babylon. Babylon. They were in Aramaic, so in a portion of it, Daniel 2, to, 2 4 to 7 28, which was the common language of the land at that time. It is certainly possible that these magi just had access to the prophecies and that they uh, came about with them and they, they, dis, they discovered them. If you also notice that through here in Daniel, it says here, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man, which is the Messiah, was coming. And he came up in the ancient days of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that's the Messiah, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, clearly indicating that he would be king over the kingdom, that all the people's nations and men in every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7. Arnold Fruchenbaum says this. He makes an interesting comment. Daniel saved the lives of astronomers when he was in Babylon. You see, Daniel correctly interpreted the king's dream, which saved those who could not. And so there must or there there's a possibility that there could have been people who turned to Daniel's God at that time through this event. No doubt many of these men turned from worshiping the stars to worshiping the creator of the stars. So it's possible maybe that this body of wise men here um, most likely were part of this kind of knowledge, that maybe they had Daniel's writings. Or maybe they were able to determine the Messiah's coming through those things. As to the knowledge of the star being the herald, they could have also known the book of Numbers. Because in Numbers chapter twenty four, seventeen, it talks about the star being the herald for the Savior. So how do they get the book of, of Numbers? This is an interesting fact, and then I know these are just facts, but there's another Babylonian connection here. You see, Balaam, who we talked about in the book of Joshua, and we referred back to Numbers, was in fact a Babylonian astrologer. Balaam, son of Beor from Pathor of Massopotonium, that is on the banks of the Euphrates River in. Babylonian. He was probably from the Babylonian school of of uh, astrology. On another point that is worth noting is that the Magi could have known about the Messiah uh, when the Messiah would have been born by studying and obviously God opening the eyes of their hearts to Daniel's great prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed from your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression. To make an end to sin. To make an atonement for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. It goes on 70 weeks and, and how the Messiah will be cut off. And then will be uh, returned. So they could have known the prophecies of Daniel. If we look at this in the triumphant entry in Matthew chapter 21, we will see that Jesus is hailed as King. So, to know that Jesus is the King of kings, we recognize that He is is a King. The wise men identified the King of the Jews. And then again, when Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem in uh, Matthew's Gospel, there 21, we see that He is celebrated as king. We see that he is recognized and hailed as king, but only it will only take a few days later where the Jews denied Jesus as their king. In fact, they'll cry out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answer in John 19. We have no king but Caesar. You can see the tragic irony in this. There's a tragic irony to this. At the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, the Gentile majesty, those who are non, not Jewish, they acclaim Jesus as king of the Jews. Whereas at the end of Jesus' life, the Jews deny he was their king. So, first of all, we will discuss the issue of now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he, he who's born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. The basic rule of interpretation is this when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, we seek no other sense. You get that? When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, then we have no need to seek any other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context as we study it in light of the related passages right, or the fundamental truths indicate otherwise. Dr. David L. Cooper. Said that. And so when we look at something, we take the facts as they are unless we're told otherwise. So we should take the Bible exactly as it says, unless there is some indication in the text and in the context that it tells us otherwise or that we shouldn't be taking it literally. So there are five things that indicate that this is not a literal star. Right? To begin with, right, that was no. Ordinary star is evident by the actions that the star took. Right? A star taking action will indicate it's not a normal star. The wise men would see a star in the east, and they would follow the star. Has anyone tried to follow a star? Well, a star will be here. And as you go there, if you move this way, Where's the star? Still there. <laughs> like the star does not move, right? In the sense that it, it won't follow you. You won't follow. If you're looking at the house there and the stars above the house, and I go over to this side, right? It may not be above the house. Right? Because it's in the sky. So obviously, there is a sense that this is not a normal star because it didn't take a normal pattern that way. The star. Appears and disappears. They follow the star. They come to Jerusalem. But the child's not in Jerusalem. They inquire of Herod. They inquire of the people. And they find out the, where is the baby to be born? In Bethlehem. They come to go find the child. And now the star has appeared again to them. We find that in the text. We find that the star moves from east to west. There's a movement. We find the star moves from north to south. So it came from east to west to Jerusalem, but then it went from north to south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So the star then will hover over a single house in Bethlehem and points to where the Messiah is. Any literal star, as we know, will not hover over just one house in Bethlehem. And so we see that there is Uh, Because if it did, it would disturb the entire universe for number one, right? Uh, So it's evident that this is probably not a literal star. It's obviously meant to be something different. But what is it? Again, Arnold uh, Froukenbott says this, the root meaning of the Greek word star simply means radiance or brilliance. By this star in the form of a light, what we actually have is the appearance, which he would say is possibly the Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory is that which is God's glory appearing. It's not in the text, but it's a possibility that the Shekinah glory is what's the visible manifestation of God's presence. And so God wherever God became visible in the Old Testament we find that it's referred to as the Shekinah glory. God's glory being manifest. So what happens when King Herod hears this? What is this? The question of the Magi about another king. Well, Herod is king. And Herod is king of the Jews, it's called. So by the Senate in Rome for 40 years, Herod is called king of the Jews. He's affirmed this title and now there's another King here, another one that's designated. This D. A. Carson says that Herod he was a health, a wealthy, politically gifted, intensely loyal, an excellent administrator, and clever enough to remain in good graces of successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superior, and building projects which he began in 20 B.C. Uh, were admired by even his foes, but he loved power. Right, he inflicted incredibly high, heavy taxes on the people, and represented the fact that many Jews, I cons- uh, the fact that many Jews considered him a usurper. And in the last years, Herod suffered an illness that. Compounded his paranoia, I mean he was paranoid, but this illness compounded it, and he turned to cruelty and fits of rage and jealousy and killed his associates. So when Herod King heard these things, he was what 's the word troubled Have you ever been troubled? you ever felt troubled in your Spirit. Well, Herod's feeling troubled. The word troubled in this text means agitated. So not only was he just troubled, he's agitated. He's agitated like when you boil water and water starts to bubble. That's the agitation. He's bubbling here. It's a strong word and it shows hostility in nature. So what is he troubled by? He's troubled by a few things. Number one, he's troubled by the message. Herod heard these things. What did he hear? He heard of the coming of the Christ. The wise men said that somebody important was born. Someone who's the king of the Jews. The birth of Christ was not met with much joy in the world when he first arrived. Oh, we get the story from Luke of the angel's celebrating and communicating to the shepherds, and the shepherds going and rejoicing. We have the wise men who will now visit Jesus. But really on the whole scope of things, Jesus' entrance into the world was not a celebration by many. He also found that there's the crown of Christ, and not only the fact that He came, There's somebody here who's arrived, but there's a crown. These wise men had said that Christ was to be king of the Jews in verse 2. This manifested rank, it communicated power, right? The power of Jesus Christ. Herod does not like this. In fact, he had his three sons killed and his wife because of his paranoia on this matter. So, you can imagine hearing these words that there's another and that he's a king. Right? There's the celebration of Christ. These wise men were coming to worship him. We've come to worship this new king. And so, there's a reverence, there's a respect, there's an honor that's going to be given here. There's placing value in this king, and it makes the person worshiped very honored especially when the worshipers have come from such a long distance from the east to worship Him, uh, this would be very upsetting to Herod. Why? Because He wants the worship. The worship should be due Him, not somebody else. There's also the communicants of Christ. Because the wise men had come such a long distance to worship Him, they were obviously very dedicated Very devoted to Christ. The world does not adore such people, does not value such people who are solely dedicated to Christ. That has not changed in over 2,000 years. So not only is there a troubling message, but there's a troubled monarch. Herod is troubled deeply. Herod. Several things about Herod are in the context of the text. No wonder he's troubled at the news of Christ's birth and the worship that's due him. All of this is contrary to him. So his character, he was a very deceitful person. right? He was very deceitful to the wise men. He just tried to deceive them. He pretended that he too, I, I want to go worship too. So if you get this information... Right when you, when you come, give it to me so I can come and worship Him too. He wanted to do away with Christ, in fact. He wanted to get the information. History is not kind to Herod. He was jealous, self-serving, and proud. And while alive, he was called Herod the Great. Right? But death changed the great to the Gaul. The Bible never calls him Great. The Bible never calls him great. He was called great. And in fact, uh, the Bible never calls him great at all. But it does call John the Baptist and Jesus great. He was ignorant of important spiritual truths. He was hypocritical. He was not intending to worship. He was cruel. He lashed out in an effort to kill the Christ child by killing children two years and younger in the area that he knew of in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. But there's also not only this troubled monarch, but there's this troubled movement. So yeah, we look at Herod, and he's the villain in this account. But it's interesting, there's a troubled movement. It says, and all Jerusalem with him. Not only was Herod troubled, but all Jerusalem's troubled over this. A world that calls a Herod great will not rejoice over the coming of a Christ. The Christ. You would expect Jerusalem of all places to rejoice. Of all places, this should be the place to rejoice. The Messiah's here. But it was filled Most likely with sin, disobedience, selfishness, etc. So we give ourselves away by what we rejoice in. What we criticize. And what we compliment. Evil likes evil. Not righteousness. So the world loves security. It loves the status quo. And it can get complacent. And that's what's happened. These are the Jewish people. The king of the Jews has arrived. And yet they are troubled by the news. So notice, Herod gathers them together and he demands of them. He doesn't just request. He demands of them that they bring back news. He said to them, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. So he gathers his scribes together. He gathers the biblical knowledge people, and he says to them, hey, what does it say? Where is the Christ to be born? I'm not sure, but it doesn't give us a time in between. I assume that this is like a question with an immediate response. So can you picture this? So where is he to be born? It is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah. They knew probably right off the top of their head. They probably knew right from memory about this. There was no, let's go back and check the facts. They knew exactly the place. So that's interesting. You know, that they did not need time to answer. They did not need to go back to the scrolls and check it out. They seemed to know the answer right away after Herod inquires of them. It really actually is a sad state to recognize that when religious leaders know the answers but fail to communicate the truth to those under them. They recognized the truth, and yet there's no indication of them communicating the truth. They, which we'll see the wise men do, they should have been the ones seen with exceeding joy that this has happened. It is written, it is written occurs 76 times in the Bible and four uses of them are with one person or in one event with Christ in his temptation. Three by Jesus and one by Satan himself, the tempter. So When we are children and our parents told us to do something as they would tell us, what would be our question? One word, three letters. Why? The answer was usually because I told you so. Maybe you didn't grow up in a home like that. I did. Well, why not? Well, because I told you so. Okay. And I was a good child, so I just said that's mine. That's exactly what it must mean. But why are we commanded to be holy? Because God said so. A popular saying is God said it, believe it, I believe it, that settles it. Right? You heard that one before? Sounds good, but it actually is not accurate. Because God's word is true regardless of whether I believe it or not. So it doesn't matter about the belief. You could actually take that out. God said it, that settles it. Whether I believe it or don't believe it doesn't really matter. The word here used is grapho. And it's a perfect tense, which indicates that God's word was written down at a point in time and it stands written. It'll stand. It stands the force of time. It stands. No matter what, it still stands relevant to life. Jesus, in fact, said heaven and earth will pass away, but My Word will not pass away. It's forever. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd My people Israel. This is the first of the four fulfillments in this passage here that we find. There's four fulfillments of Scripture from the Old Testament, this is the first one that takes place. But we notice that they are sent on their way. They head to Bethlehem. they following the star again that has come clearly in view. And it settles over a house. They come to the house and they rejoiced with great joy. In fact, it's exceedingly great joy. Rejoiced is chario, which means a state of gladness. It means to be delighted in. So they're delighted here. Joy is chara. It's a feeling of great pleasure. It's an inner gladness or delight. An emotion evoked by a sense of well-being or a deep feeling of happiness and contentment. It's, it is almost as if they could not experience a greater degree of joy. So it's stated above Their over-the-top joy was because of their anticipation of one thing. Our theme is Discover Jesus. How do I know if I've discovered Jesus? Well, on your journey of discovery, as you grow closer, you will be more and more drawn with anticipation. Of what this is. The joy that's coming. It's over the top. Because there's an anticipation that they are going to meet the real star. Right? The real star. The king of the Jews himself. Contrasted. Herod is troubled. Jerusalem is troubled. The wise men are rejoicing. Are you troubled? Or are you rejoicing? That's really a good question to ask as it kind of draws the application to myself. In my heart and soul, am I troubled by Jesus? Am I troubled by this person? Or am I rejoicing in the King of the Jews? So after coming into the house, it would seem that the overcrowding situation that had existed in Bethlehem when they were going there right, to register had probably dissipated. That the family's now in a house that they live in instead of their initial accommodations when Mary gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there's no room for them in the inn in Luke 2 7. And what takes place is as they come into the house, they find. Mary. And they find the child. And the only response that they have, you remember they're anticipating this, they're rejoicing, they're filled with with hope and joy at their arrival at the house. But when they come in, the words here are an amazing set of words, and they fell to the ground and worshipped Him. They fell to the ground. It's described as throwing oneself to the ground as a sign of devotion before a high-ranking person or divine being. Failing to fall to the ground is what you do not acknowledge, right? We do not do this, but they fall to the ground. They have the highest respect. They become low to the One whom they are before. And one can envision them as they are falling on their faces before Jesus, throwing kisses towards Him, which would be the cultural gesture to do of reverence and respect. Now, we're Baptists, so we're not a kneeling type people. But let me tell you, in Scripture, time and time again, when people met Jesus, there was a falling to the ground in reverence and respect. This is kind of a little bit of a primer to our next series in the new year as we look at Revelation and hope through Revelation. But when John, and remember, this is John who puts his head on Jesus' at the Last Supper. This is John the beloved one. When he sees Jesus in Revelation chapter one, his response is just to fall to the ground and worship in reverence of who he is. Right? It's not, hey buddy, <laughs> it's a reverence of Jesus, of the risen Savior. Note that they worshipped Him. You've got to catch that for a minute here. They fell down and worshipped Him. There's no mention in Scripture that describes any worship given to who, who's in the house. Mary and jo- and Jesus. There's no reference ever given to the worship of Jesus. Respected, Yes. Reverend, maybe even to a degree, but never ever worshipped. The Savior's worshipped. The child's worshipped. Jesus, the King of the Jews, is worshipped. In the Gospels, there are nine prostations before the Savior. The Magi. Jair, uh, Jairus. The woman healed. There's another woman healed. And Peter. And the leper. And the Gadrian. And the Samaritan. And Mary. The worship of the Magi, was associated with a voluntary giving of gifts. And these gifts were given. And they were expensive gifts. And they were fit for a king. Like they were brought specifically for a king. It was well attested that the Jewish expectation was that both Jews and non-Jews would bring the Messiah gifts. That was a known thing. And while it may be Somewhat fanciful, the early church fathers understood that the gold was symbolic of Christ's deity, the frankincense of his purity, and the myrrh of his death, since it was used for embalming. But Wolverud says, unquestionably, the gifts were chosen appropriately gold for his deity and majesty, frankincense for the fragrance of his life and his intercession, myrrh for his sacrifice and his death. But Frankenbaum adds this, the wise men gave to Jesus three types of gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All of these are full of Old Testament symbolism. Gold is symbolic of royal or kingship, emphasizing that Jesus is a king. Frankincense is a symbol of deity because frankincense was a part of the special scent that was burning on the altar of incense within the holy place. And the smoke... Penetrated into God's presence. It was important. And it was in the Holy of Holies itself. Frankincense emphasizes Jesus is God. And myrrh was associated in the Old Testament with death and embalming. While the first line of that famous Christian song, Christmas song is, we three kings of Orient are, may not be biblical. The last line which says, God and King and sacrifice certainly is. Well, the intent of the gifts is pure worship. These gifts were given just as a worship. There's another possibility and a possible benefit of these gifts that were given by the Magi. You see, God knew. God predetermined that this would take place because there's a reason and a purpose needed. You can imagine Joseph and Mary will soon be on a trip that will cost them dearly. They will need to get up. They will need to get going in the night. They need to escape a murderer designed to eliminate the child. The gifts of the Magi would have been provided to give them funds that they would need for the trip and their living expenses. See, true worship enables the work of God to go forward. Did the wise men know what was coming? had no idea did the wise men even maybe know what the symbolic significance was probably not did they know that they would be needed on their journey not at all but god knew you know we don't always know what might be the result of our worship cuz worship takes on the form of action after we we act we react to what god has done in our life and we have no idea sometimes what that looks like but God does God uses it and he's using it here and having been warned by God in a dream not to return the wise men apparently they obviously go a different way and they do not return to Herod Joseph's told in a dream get up get going take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there take the time get going you got to go do not delay keep fleeing is the word, and keep remaining in Egypt until I tell you. And so he does. Joseph is an amazing illustration of the response. Why? Because every time you find Joseph, what is he doing? He's acting immediately. The angel says to do this. Take take Mary. He gets up. He takes her as his wife. you got to go to Egypt. He gets up in the middle of the night and he's gone. He's, he's, a, he's somebody who responds in obedience right away, and yet we don't find a lot about Joseph in these stories. As we consider Jesus as the King of kings, we are reminded that He, and He alone, desires and deserves our worship. Our best gift. Our talents. Our time, our treasures desires all of us. That's what worship is. It's it's giving of all of us to the one we are worshiping. And Jesus is the King of kings and deserves all of that for us. I know, again, as I mentioned, we're not a kneeling type people, but the posture communicates worship. The kneeling down before communicates worship. And, So I would encourage you, we may not physically kneel, nor need to necessarily, but we do need to humble ourselves. We do need to kneel our hearts and lives before the Savior in a posture of worship this morning and throughout the Christmas season and into the new year and into the months and years to come. It's, I think it's fascinating because you see this account happens a few years, possibly a year or so after. There's a time in between the birth and when these people arrive, the wise men. Right? And it communicates, our worship never ends. It's not a one-time moment for the Savior. It's a life commitment to Him. Heavenly Father, I pray as we just consider uh, this journey of discovery. Thank You that You are the Prince of Peace, that You came to bring peace. Peace between God and man. Peace in our lives. And peace ultimately is a future where we will live and reign with You for, forever and ever. We thank You that You are our Emmanuel, our God with us. And what that means is so important to us that You are near. You're not distant. You come and You reside within us. You are within grasp because of Christ and Him coming to earth. We thank You that You are the King of kings. You are the King of the Jews that came to save His people from their sins. And You came to open up that opportunity for us to enter into salvation and to recognize You as King. I pray this morning as we just reflect, have we made You King? Have we worship, do we worship You as King? Do we honor you as king in all areas of our life, not only in our lip service to you, but also in our thoughts, in our actions, in our uh, attitudes. Lord, may you continue to be king, and may we give you that honor that is due you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.